after eight as you guys take your seats. Good to see everybody this morning. Now, it seems like we've been in Romans chapter eight forever, which in some ways we have. I think I figured it up this morning. This is our fifth lesson out of Romans eight. Now, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to finish up Romans eight here. And the reason we've been spending so much time in Romans eight, if you weren't with us last week, we stressed how Romans eight is a transitional chapter in the book of Romans the first seven chapters of Romans deals with this idea of introducing us to the concept of the gospel, revealing that we're all sinners and we only can be saved through Jesus Christ, and the importance of the gospel and then living the gospel. Well, in Romans 9, it changes subjects a little bit. We get into Israel and Israel being saved and our role in salvation with that. And then from Romans 12 on, it's application. So Romans 8 is transmitted the first seven chapters in Romans. And it also introduces us to the topics that are going to go in verses, excuse me, chapters 9 on through 16. So it's a transitional chapter that has lots of information. Lots of information. It's not something that we wanted to skip over lightly. So we're going to finish it up. And if you weren't with us last week, we focused on verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we talked about that verse, how that could argumentably be one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. That as a Christian, whatever comes your way, God is going to use for a divine purpose, for something bigger, something better, to mold you and make you into a believer that he's called you to be. But we worked backwards. We started with Romans 8.28 and we went back to verse 19. And we talked about why is it so important to know that God's working for the good in all situations? Because as it says in Romans 8, this world we live in, it makes us moan, it makes us groan, it makes us labor. This is a tough world. It's a very, very tough world. And so through this tough world, we need to have faith that God's working and moving no matter what. If you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to grab a copy of the CD, listen to it online, especially if you're going through a tough time in life right now. You need that encouragement that God is moving and working. So we pick it up today in verse 29, and I'm going to read verses 29 and 30, then go back and do a little bit more of an introduction here. Verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now the problem with these verses is when you read them, you only focus on certain words. Verse 29, foreknew, predestined, etc. And so for these two verses, it becomes this theological debate of predestination. That's not the point and purpose of those verses. Remember, you have to remember this. Every time you read and study the Bible, try to find the key point. The key point of today's message is snuggled right in there in verse 29 that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of his son. That, that's the point and purpose of what we're going to talk about today. We're Christians. Christians means follower of Christ. It means we're supposed to be Christ-like. We're supposed to be Christ-like in our actions, Christ-like in our words, Christ-like in our marriage, Christ-like in our witness, in our work, at home, whatever. We're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to be in the image of Jesus. The problem is we skip over that part and we just focus on foreknew and predestined and all that other type of stuff. Is that stuff not important? No, that stuff's important. But the key point is being conformed to his image. But before we can talk about that, let's talk about those words. What's it mean that God foreknew us? What's it mean that God predestined us? Well, the word foreknew just means he had knowledge beforehand. God knew beforehand who would accept him and who wouldn't. Now, he didn't force this on anybody. He didn't say, you're going to accept me, whether you like it or not. And he didn't say to people, you know what, you really want to have a relationship with me, but I'm sorry. No, he didn't say that. He had knowledge before, and he's God. One of the first things I remember learning in discipleship class when I took discipleship out here is the omnis. God has these different omni qualities, and the first one is he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. God knew I was going to get saved. So since God knew that I was going to get saved, he had foreknowledge of that because he's God. He knew who would accept him and who wouldn't. So therefore, the Lord brought people and situations into my life to bring me to the point of salvation. 
which takes us to the next word there, predestined. Predestined means appointed, foreordained. So since God knew that I would accept him, he appointed people in situations in my life to help me come to the point of knowing Jesus Christ. For you that are saved and maybe got saved longer or should say later in life, look back. Do you not see how the Lord allowed certain situations and people into your life that maybe planted seeds or maybe eventually brought you to salvation in Jesus Christ? That's God working those things out. Which takes us right back to verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God knew that I would accept him, so he allowed certain situations and people to come into my life to help lead me towards the path of salvation. Remember last week we talked about how Romans 8:28 was one bookend, and the other bookend was Jeremiah 29:11, which says, God says, I should say, I know the thoughts that I have towards you, thoughts of a plan and a future and of a peace. I put that all together. God knew I would accept him. So he allowed certain situations, he ordained certain things to come into my life. He knows the thoughts that he has for me. He knows the plan that he has for me. And so therefore, help me bring me to the point of salvation. Now once again, this does not mean certain people are called and certain people aren't. I mean, that's that Puritan mindset of either you're saved or you're not. Only certain people are saved, certain people aren't. And you're not going to know if you're saved or not. So that's why the Puritans push success and work ethic so much. is because they figured if you were blessed in your world that obviously you're blessed by God, which would reveal, therefore, that you are then walking with the Lord. Can you imagine going through life not knowing? Am I part of the elect? Am I not part of the elect? Oh, Lord, I really want to be saved. I hope you chose me because I really want this. Well, he calls everybody. Look at verse 30. More of whom he predestined, these he also called. What's it mean to be called? Well, it says in Matthew 22, verse 14, Many are called. Many are called. Few are chosen. God wants us all. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2.4, the Bible says that God desires all men to be saved. That's God's desire. He wants every single person to be saved in Christ. He's calling them to a relationship with him. problem is some people don't want that calling. They don't want that. The classic verse that we quote all the time, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who's called? Whosoever. That means anybody. Anybody can be called to salvation. That verse does not say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that some people that believe in him. That's whosoever. And so therefore, when you put this all together, many are called. God knows who's going to be saved and not. So therefore, he can ordain things in their life to bring them to the point of salvation. But he wants us all. He calls us all. The problem is, are we listening? Are we obeying? Are we going forward with that? Because here's the problem. I have free will. Free will is both a blessing and a curse. In free will, I can choose to sin, or in free will, I can choose to go deeper in Christ, hence that term, be conformed to the image of God. See, I want that. I want to be conformed. I want to be like Jesus. I mean, isn't that a desire? We talked about this when we went through Romans 7. We have a desire to want to do what's right. We do. The problem is it's the follow-through. We live in this world where we're attacked left and right and we're tempted to make decisions that we shouldn't, but my goodness, we want to do what's right. And Jesus set the example for us. That's why verse 29 says he's the firstborn among many brethren. That firstborn means he set the example. He's the first one. Now, now for you that have numerous kids or maybe you grew up in a larger family, you know the idea of the firstborn. Firstborn carries the power, carries the might. You know, I came from a family of three and my oldest sister... Is, you know, she is the firstborn. There's no doubt about it. I always joke that if we were a mafia family, she'd be the head. She'd be, she'd be ordering hits on people, etc. That's just her personality. I mean, I can remember as a kid that she would call us, the rest of us, JC and myself, the kids. And she'd talk to mom and dad and say, well, what about the kids? 
And we're not that far apart in age. In fact, there's a time in the year where we'll be like 34, 35, 36. I mean, so it's not like we're this big distance. So this firstborn thing. And that's the thing is, Elias, our firstborn, we tell him, Elias, be the example. Be the example, man. It's like, Elias, when you do this, they do this. You know, you're the big brothers. Carry that example. And the verses that we've tried to ingrain into them is Proverbs. Uh, now I'll say it, we tried to ingrain it into them. That means I don't need to know it. But it's in Proverbs. And it says that a friend loves at all time and a brother is always there to help. And we said, okay, there's going to be five of you guys, five brothers. You guys need to always be there to help each other. But the thing about the firstborns, it's, it's difficult. Firstborns have a unique personality. My wife is a firstborn. Obviously, Elias is a firstborn. And one of the things I think about firstborns is I, I call them, they're joy stealers. <laughs> I mean, have you ever been around a firstborn? They're just not a lot of fun. I'm just, they're not. I'm trying to think of an apology, and there's really not one. Firstborns are just not a lot of fun sometimes. But not with Jesus. Now, now Jesus was a fun firstborn. But the point is, see, now you firstborns are sitting there, and you're angry. But the middle... <laughs> The middle and the babies are like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. So anyway, Jesus was a good firstborn. He was a good firstborn, and he set the example. That's what's talked about there in First 1. He is the preeminent one. He's the firstborn. He set an example for us to follow. Now, and this is an important point. It's because Jesus lived it. If you're taking notes, First Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, Jesus set an example for us in suffering. Then in John 13, John 13, verse 15, it says that Jesus set an example for us in service. That's where he washed the disciples' feet. Christ is the example for us. And so therefore, when we come to live our lives, that little catchphrase that caught on you know, 10, 15 years ago, what would Jesus do? There's some truth to that. We have to stop and say he set an example for us in service and in suffering and in ministry. I want to be like him. I want my life to be conformed to him. Hence, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's why we're here, as to learn how to be more like Christ. Now, if you would turn to Romans 12 real quick, here's the problem. You're either conformed to the image of Jesus, or you're conformed to the world. There's no third option. You're either going to be like the world, or you're going to be like Jesus. Romans 12. We'll get to this chapter here, obviously, in a few weeks, but it's important to bring this point up now. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be, and here's the word, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay, who are you going to conform yourself to? Who are you going to be like? Romans 8.29 says we're supposed to conform ourselves to the image of Jesus. Romans 12.2 warns us not to conform ourselves to the image of the world. I know people that claim to be Christians. They talk like the world, they act like the world, they dress like the world, and they live like the world. It's hard to see Christ in them. That's not being judgmental, that's being honest. You have to ask, who am I conforming myself to? Who am I acting like? Once again, I, I've met people that are, are quite Christ-like in certain scenarios. But when they get around certain people, certain friends, certain groups, certain co-workers, now they conform to the world. can't do that. We're either conforming ourselves to the image of Christ or we're conforming ourselves to the world. Now, to conform ourselves to the image of Christ, that's hard to do. That's why it says right here that we're supposed to be a living sacrifice, according to verse 1 of Romans 12. We're supposed to willfully die to those things that bring us down. Now, it's been said many times, the problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to crawl off the altar. Nobody wants to be sacrificed. 
God says, I want you to willfully look at your life and say, I'm going to let go of those things that bring me down, that hurt my marriage, that hurt my witness, that hurt my kids. I'm going to let go of those things so that way I can conform myself to the image of Jesus. That's hard to do. That's very difficult to do. That involves dying to ourself. That's an ongoing process of trying to be more like Christ in all that we do. But the point is, verse 2, we want to be transformed. That word transform is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Caterpillar to butterfly. That's what that word literally means. The point is, is that once you get saved and walking with the Lord, your old lifestyle and your new lifestyle are supposed to be so radically different that people look at you now as a believer and say, he used to do what? She used to act like what? And that when you meet somebody from your old life, they see the difference in you. If you're not being transformed, you have to stop and ask, okay, did Christ make that change in my life? It's supposed to be radically different. Caterpillar to butterfly. This last fall, I took the three older boys out a lot, and we had just this swarm of milkweed. So we went out and um, got the monarch butterfly caterpillars. And so we'd go out every day, and we'd catch them, and we'd bring them back. So if there's a shortage of monarchs next year, you know who to blame, because we, we killed a lot. I'm sorry. But the point is, <laughs> Lias, the oldest, he got it. Caterpillar is going to do the cocoon, become a butterfly. He was excited. Judah pretty much so got it. Kenan, he didn't get it. He didn't get the concept that these caterpillars become butterflies. He just didn't get it. And he just kept waiting. When are they going to become a butterfly? How is this going to happen? What's going to happen? And so then he saw the one caterpillar go into the little cocoon thing. And he started to finally get it. But the point is, I think this happens in Christianity sometimes. I, I, I want to know about God. Okay, I, I believe in God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Oh, have you been transformed? I don't know what you're talking about. I just believe in God. Oh, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah, sure, I believe in Jesus. Okay, how has he transformed your life? I, I don't know what you're talking about. They don't get this transformation process. Now, this is not legalism. This is not a hellfire and brimstone. This is a fact. When we get saved, we get transformed, conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what's supposed to happen. Our lifestyle, our actions, our words are supposed to change, not because we have to, but because we want to. He set an example for us, and we want to follow that example and live the Christian life like he called us to. So now let's jump back and talk about this. Because once we get this idea of being conformed to the image of the Son, verse 29, we get to go to verse 30. Whom he predestined, which we talked about, these also he called, who we talked about. Now whom he called, these also he justified. Now remember, justified is a term that was introduced to us back in chapter 2 and 3 in Romans. Justified means to be made right. God has made you right. You had sin. I had sin. He's paid the penalty for our sin. He's paid our debts. He's canceled our debts. We're made right. We're justified. So now that we've been justified, now look, whom he justified, these also he glorified. Wow. You realize as a born-again believer, you're glorified? Now, I look at that passage, and I'm telling you right now, there's no glory in me. I'm not glorified. I guess the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, but I I mean, I'm not glorified. God, when he looks at you as born again saved, he sees the full picture. He already sees you glorified up in heaven. He sees you in that eternal realm made right in Jesus. Now in this world we live in, under these time constraints that we are, I sure don't feel glorified. Some days I don't even feel justified. Some days I don't even know if I'm called. But God sees the big picture. I'm called, justified, and glorified. And he sees me as a complete project done in heaven. I don't see that. So you know what he tells me? If you're taking notes, write this verse down. Philippians 1.6, he reminds me, he that has begun a good work in you will complete it. He reminds me that on this earth, I'm still a work in progress. 
But he sees the full thing. He sees what I can become. You know, Isaiah says that he is the potter and I'm the clay. And he's constantly molding and making me into the image of Jesus. I look at myself sometimes in the spiritual mirror and I say, Lord, you could have picked a better husband for Dawn. You could have picked a better father for those kids. You could have picked a better pastor for that church. Are you sure? He says, yeah. Because I see, I have begun a good work in you, and I will complete it. Isn't that reassuring? That the Lord sees us, and he sees what we're going to become. So in the midst of that darkness, when you can't tell up from down, left from right, and you feel like everything is over and done, you feel like everything is despair and discouragement, God says, you're glorified. God says, verse 28, I'm working good in your situations, even though you don't see it. I see the big picture. What a wonderful thing to know that even though I give up on myself, God never gives up on me. What a wonderful thing to know that even though I feel like he should just stop and start afresh with somebody else, God says, I'm going to keep working with you. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He keeps working with us. Now, putting this all together, verse 28, he's working for good in my life even though I don't see it. Verse 29, I'm supposed to be conformed to his image. Verse 30, he's called me, he's justified me, he's glorified me. Putting this all together now, let's finish this up. Paul asks a lot of questions here from verses 31 through 39. Some he answers, some are rhetorical. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'd say right there, that second half of verse 31, that's a refrigerator verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now that you know that he's called you, justified you, and glorified you, what situations... What scenario, what thing going on in your life right now is bigger than Jesus Christ? Nothing. Now that you know what's going on, what situation in life trumps the Savior? Nothing. So, if God is for us, who can be against us? Don't go to the woe is me. Don't go to what we call those Eeyore moments of life where everything is against me. Don't go there. If God is for you, who can be against you? One of the things that happens in Christianity today is a lot of what we call this victim mentality. I have the worst life ever. No one else in this world has a boss as bad as my boss. No one else in this world has a marriage as bad as my marriage. No one else in this world has relationships as bad as my relationships. I've just got it the worst than anybody else in this world. That is a victim mentality where Satan's just trying to bring you down. The Bible makes it abundantly clear in verse 31. If God is for you, who can be against you? He's on your side. Well, it doesn't feel like it. I tell you, one of the things that I've learned out here at church over the years... If somebody comes in and they have themselves convinced that nothing will ever work out for them, they'll never have the right relationships, the right job, the right family, the right life, the what, whatever, that, that their world is just the worst world ever, their life is just the worst life ever, I can take them to these passages and say, God's for you, who can be against you. I can take them to verse 37 and say, you know what, you're more than a conqueror in Christ. I can take them there. Truth of the matter is, they just don't want to believe it. If you don't want to accept the fact of God's on your side who can be against you, there's nothing I can do to convince you any other way. The Lord says, I'm on your side. Then how does he prove it? Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him also freely give us all things? God didn't spare his son. Doesn't that prove enough that he cares for you? I tell you right now, I love every single one of you that walks through these doors. But I'm not giving up on my kids for you. God loves you so much that he said, I'll, I'll let my son take the penalty on the cross. And the son took it willfully. If you ever sit there in the middle of the night wondering, does anybody care? Verse 32, God did not spare his own son for you. That's love. And what did he do this for? So he can get freely give you all things. Now, here's the problem with freely give us all things. Some people aren't happy with their things. Oh, God freely gave me all things. That's why my car is falling apart. That's why my house is falling apart. That's why everything I have is just junk. 
He freely gave you salvation. Now, what are you going to whine and complain about when it comes to salvation? See, here's the thing is, with people I've talked to over the years, when they start getting that woe is me, I used to try to argue back. Oh, my goodness, you know, my house is fine. Oh, no, you got, you got a nice house. Have you seen my house? Wiring's bad, the leak's bad, or this, whatever. You know, I, I'm the one, my, my car's junk. Well, you know, it gets you from point A to point B. Oh, you don't even know. And it becomes this battle. So finally, what I say is, he gave you salvation. Are you going to whine about salvation? I mean, are you going to try to find something negative to say about salvation? He freely gave you Jesus Christ on the cross. What else do we need? And so, therefore, God is on our side. He's for us. He gave us Jesus. Well, now look at verse 33. Well, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. See, now the problem is when you start bringing up Jesus to people, some people start saying, well, I don't know if I really know him, or I don't, how do I even know I'm saved, or any of this type of stuff. Well, right here, look at verse 33. Who's going to bring a charge against you? God justified you. God made you right. He says you're part of the family. He says you're in. He says you're saved. He says you're mine. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, if you've had that born-again relationship with him, God says, you're mine. So when someone tries to bring a charge against you, God says, no, you are mine. Who accuses you? Do you know people that knew the old you? So therefore, when you try to go live the life in front of them, you say, okay, James, I'm going to be the butterfly. Now, you may not say it like that, but I'm going to be the transformed person. But every time I go to my friends and family that knew who I was and what I was like, they can't accept it. Who cares? God says right here in verse 33, who brings the charge against you? No one. He goes, I've justified you. I know you've changed. I know you're moving forward. I see it. So those people that can't let your past go, because I know the changes you've made. Or maybe the people that don't believe you've changed enough. Well, if you're really a Christian, you should be doing this, this, or that. God says, I'm working in you. You're a work in progress. I justified you. I made you right in me. I'm not going to condemn you, verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. This is like Jesus' resume right here. Who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. That's the resume of Jesus. He goes, I've died for you, I rose for you, and now I'm on your behalf interceding for you with God. He goes, I've taken care of you. There's no condemnation. Jump back to Romans 8, verse 1. Now, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ doesn't condemn us. There's none. God says, I love you. I've forgiven you. I've moved you. I've set you forward. Now I want you to be conformed to my image. The problem is now sometimes people sit there and say, Con condemnation, I feel condemned. The choices I've made in my past, how can God forgive me? The choices I'm making now, how can God forgive me? I've done some really bad things. I always tell people you're forgiven. This is what I hear a lot. I don't feel forgiven. Aren't you glad your relationship with Jesus isn't based on feelings? Because why? Look right here at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written? For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Skip verse 37. We'll come back to that. Verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize no situation can separate you from God's love. Look at verse 35 again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Is there anything in your life, any person that's going to separate you from God's love? No. None. So when you sit there and you say, I don't feel God. I don't feel close to Him. I don't feel He's forgiven me. You're feeling too much. Sometimes you need to get back to facts, not feelings. The facts are... Verse 35, 36, 38, and 39 make it pretty abundantly clear that God loves you, absolutely loves you. Now, maybe your walk with Christ isn't as strong as it should be. 
And that's another teaching point because I think of the passage in James where it says, draw near to God and he draws near to you. As you go further in your walk with Christ, there is a closeness to your relationship with Jesus. But the facts that we're talking about right here, nothing separates you from the love of God. Nothing. So when I run into those people that I don't feel forgiven, I don't feel loved, or my life is the worst life ever, I tell them, you need to come back and look at verses 31 through 39 of Romans 8. And you've got to focus on verse 37. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're a conqueror. As we just shared earlier, too often in Christ, I should say in Christianity, we have the victim mentality. The woe is me, how horrible my life is. And I tell you right now, some of you walked in today, and your life is rough. It is. You have physical pain and concerns you're struggling with. You have emotional heartbreak that you brought in. You have spiritual loneliness that you brought into this building. That's a fact. But as you look at those things, you have to go back and remind you, verse 35, who shall separate you from the love of Christ? Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now here's the thing. You either believe that or you don't. I, I can't make you believe that. I can't. And that's where I was talking about earlier in the message. When someone comes in with that mindset, I've tried for years to convince them, your life isn't that bad. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. No. If you've walked in today and you have yourself convinced that you got it worse than anybody else, there's nothing I can say to convince you. The only thing I can tell you is God's word doesn't return void. And I encourage you to go back and read verses 31 through 39 again and again and again. Focus on verse 37. You are more than a conqueror to Christ. Wow. God already sees you in verse 30 as glorified. Isn't that amazing? He sees you as a conqueror in verse 37. He sees what we can become. Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. There's a spark, there's a seed in you, and God says, I can work with this, I can move forward with this, I can use this. And that's what he's going to do. So if you come in today, once again, physically, emotionally, spiritually spent, Maybe you've made some really stupid choices over these last few weeks. How can God love me? Maybe your witness is no longer a witness. Maybe your relationships, your marriage, I don't know, is not as strong as it should be. Aren't you thankful that the Lord says, I'm here for you? Aren't you thankful that the Lord says, I can take this, I can work with this, I can mold this, I can use this? He says, just trust me. And that's what we want to do today is just trust him. Let's have a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, as we come to you, Lord, we are just thankful to be here. And Lord, a lot of us came in with a lot of baggage, but Lord, I'm so thankful that you just love us through it. Lord, I'm just so thankful that, that right now we may be conforming ourselves to the world. You want to conform us to your image. You're a God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances. Lord, your grace is and We thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, we see our failures. You see our future, what we can become. Lord, help us to focus on what you want us to do, what you want us to be. Lord, mold us into the image that you want. We lift us up in your name. Amen. Now,